Chapter Eleven of One Hundred Years in Yosemite by Carl Parcher Russell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven: Guardians of the Scene, Part Two. In nineteen sixteen, Congress created the National Park Service. Dr. Miller, in the meantime, had been called to other work, and Stephen T. Mather, who had followed Dr. Miller as assistant to the secretary, was made director of the National Park Service. He was authorized by law to promote and regulate the federal areas known as the national parks, monuments, and reservations. Conservation of scenery and wildlife of the areas was declared by Congress to be a fundamental purpose of the new organization. Mr. Mather's first undertaking was to balk exploitation schemes. Unfortunately, Yosemite had already been raided. In 1913, Congressman John E. Raker had introduced a bill granting to San Francisco rights to the Hetch Hetchy as a water reservoir. Secretary Garfield had opened the way to this move in 1908. In spite of much opposition, the Raker bill was passed by the House and Senate and approved by President Wilson. Since that time, the Hetch Hetchy Dam has become a reality and provides all the administrative difficulties and troubles that were expected. Private holdings in Yosemite were rather large even after the boundary changes of 1905 and 1906 were made. Timber companies possessing tracts of choice forest constituted the greatest menace. Some of these private lands have been bought up and others have been exchanged. During 1930, much progress was made in the acquisition of private holdings in the National Park. There were 15,570 acres of land involved, which cost approximately $3,300,000. Half of the cost of purchasing these lands was defrayed by John D. Rockefeller, Jr., the remainder coming from the fund provided by Congress for the acquisition of private holdings in national parks. The following statements regarding timber holdings in and near Yosemite National Park are taken from the report of the Director of National Park Service for 1930. It is impossible to overstate the importance of this Yosemite forest acquisition. It brought into perpetual government ownership the finest remaining stands of sugar pine timber in the area and reduced the total area of private holdings in the park to 5,034 acres. This total will be materially reduced when two pending deals are consummated. A tract containing 640 acres is now in course of acquisition with funds contributed by George A. Ball of Muncie, Indiana, as is another of about 380 acres, half the funds for the latter transaction being contributed through the cooperation of Dr. Don Treseder, president of the Yosemite Park and Curry Company. Additional timber holdings in the Tuolumne River watershed, fine stands of sugar and yellow pine, remain in private ownership outside the park. One cannot help regretting that they are imperiled, and it is hoped by all friends of these majestic forests that they may yet be saved. In order that the beauty of the Big Oak Flat Road may be unimpaired, arrangements have been made between the Sugar Pine Lumber Company, the Forest Service, the State, and the Park Service to preserve the roadsides through selective cutting of the larger trees and careful removal of any trees that are taken out. 
particularly interesting and valuable stands of timber which should be preserved untouched will be made the subject of exchanges between the forest service and the sugar pine lumber company this land acquisition program was finally assured of success in july nineteen thirty seven when legislation authorized the secretary of the interior to acquire the carl inn tract comprising some seven thousand two hundred acres of magnificent sugar pine forest bordering the western boundary of the park after a year and a half of negotiations with the yosemite sugar pine lumber company owner of most of the tract agreement was reached on a price of one million four hundred and ninety five thousand five hundred dollars to be paid by the united states the purchase was consummated early in nineteen thirty nine senator william gibbs mcadoo and representative john s mcgrority both of california were the ardent supporters who introduced the bills s seventeen ninety one and h r fifty three ninety four in their respective houses policies regarding the toll roads by which tourists could enter the park constituted another perplexing problem with which the young national park service was confronted the routes had been privately constructed and were privately owned and controlled by turnpike companies government funds were not available with which to purchase them outright one company was persuaded to turn the wawona road over the public in exchange for a grant for the exclusive rights to the route during a certain number of years the government assumed responsibility for the maintenance of the road during this period the owners of the Coulterville Road could not be persuaded to agree to such a plan. As a result, that part of it, which is within the park, has not been maintained, and because of erosion has fallen into disuse. The Tioga Road had been constructed in 1882-83 by the Great Sierra Consolidated Silver Mining Company for the purpose of serving the Tioga Mine. The mining venture terminated in 1884 after an expenditure of $300,000 had been made. The road had become impassable during the many years of neglect, but it was still the property of private owners when the region through which it passes became a national park. Stephen T. Mather and some of his friends bought it privately and in 1915 turned it over to the federal government. The state of California purchased the portion of the route which were outside of the park and extended the road eastward down Levining Canyon, so giving Yosemite a remarkable high mountain highway, free from toll, which connects Yosemite Valley with the routes of the Mono Basin. Tolls were also removed from the Big Oak Flat route. Every effort was made to put all recognized routes in the best of condition consistent with government appropriations travel to the park grew apace and yosemite had indeed entered a new era the first scheme of centralized administration of the national park system was promising in theory but proved faulty in practice more than a few difficulties appeared on the park's horizon the national preserves were regarded in washington somewhat as orphans and were not receiving the specialized attention so necessary for their proper administration the introduction of mather ideals and methods was required to bring about coordination the story is told that one day in 1915, Stephen Mather walked into the office of Secretary Lane and expressed indignation over the way things were run in Sequoia and Yosemite. 
Steve, said Lane, if you don't like the way those parks are run, you can run them yourself. Mr. Secretary, I accept the job, was Mather's rejoinder. The genial secretary of the interior showed him into a little office and said, There's your desk, Steve. Now go to work. With that, Lane went out and closed the door, but presently opened it and said, By the way, Steve, I forgot to ask what your politics are. With such brief preliminaries did Stephen T. Mather assume directorship of the national parks. He served through the presidential administrations of Wilson, Harding, and Coolidge, but the matter of his politics was never inquired into by any party. Stephen Mather was born on the 4th of July, 1867, in San Francisco. His ancestry traces back to Richard Mather, a Massachusetts clergyman of the days of the Pilgrim Fathers. Stephen T. Mather was not a Zion of wealth. As a young man, he made his way through college by selling books. He graduated from the University of California in 1887 and for several years was a newspaper reporter. Thereafter, he entered the employ of the Pacific Coast Borax Company and was identified with the trade name 20 Mule Team Borax that became well known around the world. For ten years, he engaged in the production of profits for his employers and then organized his own company. It was in Borax that he built up his business success and accumulated the fortune which he later shared so generously with the nation through his investments in scenic beauty on which the people received the dividends. For more than 25 years, Stephen Mather resided in Chicago, Illinois, but his loyalty to his native state, California, never waned. He was the leading spirit in the organization of the California Society of Illinois, and as its secretary, always secured donations of a carload of choice California fruits to be served at the society's annual banquets. Mather then saw to it that these affairs were well written up by the press and telegraphed throughout the country on the associated press wires. In this publicity, the spirit and motives of the present Californians, Incorporated, had their birth. As might well be expected, Mather was a member of the Sierra Club and participated in many of its summer outings. See Farquhar, 1925, pages 52-53. He became acquainted with national park areas on these trips, and it is said that his ideal of a unified administration of the parks resulted from the intimacy so acquired. It was his ambition to weld the parks into a great system and to make them easily accessible to rich and poor alike. At the time Mather undertook his big task, there were 13 parks, some of them were difficult of access and provided few or no facilities for the accommodation of visitors. Government red tape stood in the way of action in the business of park development, but Mather cut the red tape. When government appropriations could not meet the situation, he usually produced appropriations of his own. It was such generosity on his part which gave the Tioga Road to the government and saved large groves of big trees in the Sequoia National Park. In his own office, it was necessary for him personally to employ assistance. Because of the lack of government funds, he expended twice his own salary in securing the personnel needed to set his park machines in operation. The national benefits derived from the early Mather activity in the parks were recognized by Congress, and that body took new cognizance of national park matters. 
Larger appropriations were made available, and Mather's plans were put into effect. For 14 years, he gave of his initiative and strength, as well as his money. His ideas took material form, and the park system came into being as he had planned. His work was recognized and appreciated. In 1921, George Washington University bestowed upon him the honorary degree of Doctor of Law. His alma mater, the University of California, conferred the same degree in 1924. President W. W. Campbell, on that occasion, characterized him as follows. Stephen Ting Mather, mountaineer and statesman, lover of nature and his fellow men, with generous and far-seeing wisdom, he has made accessible for a multitude of Americans their great heritage of snow-capped mountains, of glaciers and streams and falls, of stately forests and quiet meadows. In 1926, he was awarded the gold medal of the National Institute of Social Sciences for his service to the nation in national parks development. The American Scenic and Historical Preservation Society awarded the Pugsley Gold Medal in recognition of his national and state park work, and he was made an honorary member of the American Society of Landscape Architects. In the fall of 1928, Mather's health failed. He suffered a stroke of paralysis, which forced his retirement from public service in January 1929. For more than a year, he fought to regain his strength, but in January 1930, he was suddenly stricken and died quickly. Indeed, the world is much the poorer for his passing, as it is much the richer for his having lived. One of Mather's first acts as director of National Park Service was to appoint a strong man to the superintendency of Yosemite National Park. On the staff of the Geological Survey was an engineer of distinction, Washington B. Dusty Lewis. Mather appointed him to the Yosemite task, and he became the first park superintendent on March 3, 1916. The Yosemite problems were complicated and trying from the beginning. The park was, even then, attracting more visitors than had been provided for. Public demands kept steadily ahead of facilities that could be made available through government appropriations. For more than 12 years, W.B. Lewis expended his energy and ingenuity in bringing the great park through its formative stages. Under his superintendency, practically all of the innovations which today characterize the public service of a national park were instituted in Yosemite. Motor buses replaced horse-drawn stages. Tolls were eliminated on all approach roads, the operating companies were reorganized, and adequate tourist accommodations were provided at Glacier Point and Yosemite Valley. A modern school was provided for local children. The housing for park employees was improved. The best of electrical service was made available. The park road and trail system was enlarged greatly and improved upon. The construction of an all-year highway up the canyon of the Merced made the park accessible to a degree hardly dreamed of. Provision of all-year park facilities met the demands of winter visitors. A new administrative center was developed, the Yosemite High Sierra camps were opened, and an information service was devised. The ranger force was so organized as to make for public respect of national park ideals and personnel. 
the interpretive work which makes for understanding of park phenomena and appreciation of park policies was initiated in yosemite and has taken a place of importance in the organization of the entire national park system in short the present-day yosemite came into existence under the hands of lewis and his assistants how well the demands of the period were met and future requirements provided for is evidenced by the continued healthy growth and present success of the yosemite administrative scheme in the fall of 1927, Lewis was stricken by a heart attack. He later returned to his office, but in September 1928, it became apparent that he should no longer subject himself to the strain of work at the high altitude of Yosemite Valley. He removed to West Virginia, and there partly regained his strength. Director Mather then sought his services as assistant director of the National Parks, and in that capacity he functioned until the summer of 1930. His physical strength, however, failed to keep pace with his ambitious spirit, and after another attack, he died at his home in a Washington suburb on August 28, 1930. Soon after Lewis accepted his Washington appointment, Director Mather experienced the breakdown which brought about his resignation as director. There was but one man to be thought of in connection with filling the difficult position. That man was Horace M. Albright, who had been Mather's right-hand man since the National Park Service had existed. A native of Inyo County, California, and a graduate of the University of California, he became an assistant attorney in the Department of the Interior, Washington, D.C., in order to advance his learning, and there took a keen interest in plans then developing for the establishment of the National Park Service. He was detailed to work in connection with park problems, and had already become familiar with them when Stephen T. Mather assumed their directorship. The Secretary of the Interior assigned him to Mather as a legal aide, which position quickly grew in responsibilities as the two men became acquainted. From the first, Albright was the director's chief reliance, and when the National Park Service was organized in 1916, he was made assistant director. In 1917, 1918, and 1919, he aided in the creation of Mount McKinley, Grand Canyon, Acadia, and Zion National Parks. At 29, he was made superintendent of the largest of all parks, Yellowstone, and in addition, shouldered the job of field director of the Park Service. In that capacity, he compiled budgets, presented them to Congress, and handled general administrative problems in the West. Outstanding among his special interests in park problems was his vigorous participation in programs launched to conserve and re-establish the native fauna of national parks. He gained an intimate understanding of the needs of American wildlife and actively engaged in attempts to supply its wants. He allied himself with such organizations as the National Geographic Society, the American Game Protective Association, the American Forestry Association, the American Bison Society, the American Society of Mammalogists, the Boone and Crockett Club, the Save the Redwoods League, and the Sierra Club. He became an expressive factor in American conservation, and in his own domain, the national parks, practiced what he preached. 
He recognized the importance of ecological study of the great wilderness areas, with the safety of which he was charged, and pressed into service a special investigator to work on Yellowstone mammal problems. Later, he seized upon the opportunity to extend this research to all parks. In keeping with his desire to assemble scientific data for the preservation of fauna and flora, he had an ambition to popularize the natural sciences as exemplified in the varied park wonderlands. He engaged actively in the development of plans for the museum, lecture, and guide service, which today distinguishes the national parks as educational centers as well as pleasure grounds. Upon the resignation of Director Mather in 1929, it was but natural that Albright should succeed him. He entered into the Yosemite administrative scheme by actual residence in the park and study of its problems. From the Yosemite personnel, he drew new executives for other parks, field officers for the service at large, and administrative assistants for his Washington office. He turned to Crater Lake National Park to obtain a superintendent who would succeed Lewis. Colonel C.G. Thompson had distinguished himself as the chief executive of Crater Lake and in 1929 was called to Yosemite. Some of the developments in Yosemite for which Thompson was largely responsible included the construction and improvements of the Wawona Road and Tunnel, improvement of the Glacier Point Road, commencement of the Big Oak Flat Road, and Tioga Road realignment, the installation of improved water systems at the Mariposa Big Trees, Wawona, and Tuolumne Meadows, construction of the new government utility buildings, and many smaller projects. Such important land acquisition programs as the Wawona Basin Project and the Carl N. Sugar Pine Addition constituted heavy administrative responsibilities imposed upon the superintendent's office during his regime. The establishment of emergency programs, CCC, CWA, WPA, and PWA, greatly expanded the development activities in the park after 1933, and the inclusion of the Devil's Post Pile National Monument and Joshua Tree National Monument in the Yosemite Administrative Scheme increased the duties of the superintendent. In 1937, Colonel Thompson was stricken by a heart ailment and died in the Lewis Memorial Hospital on March 23. In eulogy, Frank A. Kittredge said, Colonel Thompson has, through his dynamic personality and energy and the wealth of his experience, been an influence and inspiration not only to the thousands of park visitors with whom he has had personal contact, but especially to the Park Service itself. His keen sense of the fitness and desire for the harmony of things in the national parks has made itself felt in the design of every road, every structure, and every physical development in the park. He recognized the importance and practicability of restricting and harmonizing necessary roads and structures into a natural blending of the surroundings. He has set a standard of beauty and symmetry in construction, which has been carried beyond the limits of Yosemite into the entire national park system. The harmony of the necessary man-made developments and the unspoiled beauty of the Yosemite Valley attest to the Colonel's injection of his refinement of thought and forceful personality into even the everlasting granite itself of the Yosemite he loved so well. 
In June 1937, Lawrence Campbell Merriam, a native Californian, was transferred to the superintendency of Yosemite National Park. He had received a degree in forestry from the University of California in 1921, had become a forest engineer, and had later gone into emergency conservation work in the state parks throughout the United States. Upon the death of Thompson, Secretary of the Interior Harold L. Ickes appointed Merriam Senior Conservationist in the National Park Service and designated him Acting Superintendent of Yosemite. During his four years as the chief executive of the park, he renewed the service's efforts to restore the natural appearances of the valley and modified the master plan to provide suitable areas for the operator's utilities. In August 1941, Merriam became Regional Director of Region 2 National Park Service with headquarters at Omaha, Nebraska. Frank A. Kittredge succeeded him in Yosemite. During World War I, Kittredge served as an officer in the Army Corps of Engineers and saw service in France. Afterward, while with the Bureau of Public Roads, he was identified with park work. He made the location survey of the Going to the Sun Highway in Glacier National Park, did the first road engineering in Hawaii National Park, and devoted his attention to National Park road matters handled by the Bureau. In 1927, Kittredge was appointed Chief Engineer of the National Park Service and continued in that capacity for 10 years when he was made Regional Director, Region 4, a position involving supervision over park service programs in Washington, Oregon, California, Idaho, Nevada, and Utah, Glacier National Park in Montana, and the territories of Alaska and Hawaii. In August 1940, he was made superintendent of Grand Canyon National Park, from which position he was transferred in 1941 to the chief executive position in Yosemite National Park. In all this varied experience with the scenic masterpieces of the national park system, Frank Kittredge maintained a sincerity of purpose in safeguarding the natural and historic values of the parks. As was true of Mather and Albright, succeeding directors of the National Park Service have taken personal interest and active part in the management of Yosemite National Park. On July 17, 1933, Arno B. Kammerer, formerly associate director, succeeded Albright in the Washington Post. During his incumbency, 1933-40, the National Park System increased from 128 areas to 204 units, and in addition to regular appropriations, nearly $200 million was expended by the service in connection with the programs of the Civilian Conservation Corps, the Public Works Administration, and the Emergency Relief Appropriation Acts. Under Kammerer's directorship, five CCC camps were established in Yosemite National Park. With the help of CCC, CWA, and PWA, many management and construction projects in the park were advanced far ahead of regular schedule. The Wawona Road Tunnel Project was completed, and notable progress was made in constructing the Tioga and Big Oak Flack Roads on modern standards. Winter use of the park increased mightily, and the Yosemite Park and Curry Company developed the Badger Pass Ski Center in accordance with service plans. 
Because of failing health, Kammerer resigned as director in 1940, and Newton B. Drury, a Californian and a member of the Yosemite Advisory Board, was appointed to the position on June 19, 1940. Since 1919, Drury had been a leader in the movement to preserve distinctive areas for park purposes. As executive head of the Save the Redwoods League, he had become a nationally recognized authority on park and conservation affairs and was intimately acquainted with the problems of Yosemite National Park through personal studies. The normal problems of the park and of the service, generally, were greatly complicated by the circumstances resulting from World War II, and the years 1942 to 1945 were probably the most critical in the history of national parks. But in spite of pressure exerted by production interests and those who sought to capitalize on the park's assets under the guise of a war necessity, the natural values of Yosemite were held inviolate and it is to the everlasting credit of Director Drury and his staff and associates in central offices and the field that during the years of all-out warfare, serious inroads were nowhere made upon national park values. Each year, more than half a million people benefit by the great park's offerings, and each year witnesses new demands for expansion of public utilities provided by the operators and the government. To meet these demands and at the same time guarantee benefit and enjoyment of Yosemite values for future generations of visitors is one of the most exacting tasks engaged in by public servants anywhere. 200 Years 114 years have elapsed since the explorers in Joseph Walker's party first made their way to some point on the north rim of Yosemite Valley and beheld a tremendous scene beneath them. It is to be hoped that the Yosemite visitor today will have his enjoyment of Yosemite National Park somehow enhanced by the recorded story of the human events during the past century, particularly by the story of the human effort that made Yosemite accessible to him, but not too accessible. Yosemite, like other national parks, has its master plan. Upon it is set down in rather definite form the conception of the park staff of needs for physical improvements. This prescription is reviewed by technicians and executives in central offices and made to delimit the maximum development necessary to meet the requirements of staff and public. The master plan also contains an analysis of the inspirational and recreational experiences which attract the multitude of visitors to the park. As might be expected, this analysis of Yosemite's offerings points to the fact that one of the notable values of the reservation is found in its capacity to stimulate pride in the understanding of the heritage of natural beauty preserved within the park's boundaries. Another important value is indicated in the capacity of the park to serve as a repository of scientific treasures. In this last-named role as Museum of the Out-of-Doors, Yosemite National Park reasonably may be expected to become increasingly important as the less protected areas of the Sierra Nevada are more and more encroached upon by exploiters. The exploiters are not always concerned with livestock, minerals, or timber. The aggressiveness of those who cater to recreation seekers, even of the recreation seekers themselves, 
constitute a force to be reckoned with and this group particularly lays siege to the structure of national park service conservatism it is well that the visitor to this and other national parks extend his kin we know something of what has happened since 1833 but what will have happened to the yosemite region by the year 2033 a.d two hundred years after white man's first glimpse of the valley will the men of great enterprise have built ladders touching the sky changing the face of the universe and the very color of the stars or will there still be a remnant of mountain sanctuary where the handiwork of today's and tomorrow's visitors will be as hard to discern as joe walker's footsteps are to trace end of chapter eleven part two end of one hundred years in yosemite by carl parcher russell